And here's the question, and it's the question thrown in front of you every single day. Why should we live by the, the biblical standard of sexual morality? Why should this be our guide and why should we adapt our lives to it instead of all of the discussion we have around us? Now, that's a really big topic, and there's no way we're going to get through that in just three weeks. But we're going to crack into the conversation because so much of what happens in our world around us is based on human logic, reasoning, feeling. And at times, it even sounds like some of it is based on the Bible. But what I find is that there's not a whole lot of desire out there to actually know the truth. There are a lot of agendas, there are a lot of desires to justify and rationalize, but there's not a whole lot of hunger to actually know the truth. And so what I'm saying to you as our church family today is this, our job, our call from our good, good father is that we know what he thinks and then we follow him. In other words, I'm not so concerned if you can prove to me through some logic or through some gotcha moment or through some fancy meme that you can post online that has a witty saying that's like, aha, you're an idiot. Nothing like that. I'm saying we need to be people who say, okay, God, show us. And I wonder sometimes where that has gone in our church. There's a whole lot at stake. I will tell you, As a pastor, there are two pains that I have witnessed, that I've sat with people, that I have hugged on people, that I have cried with people, two pains that stand out far and above all other pains in life. One of them is losing a loved one, spouse, parent, child, unspeakable pain. But right under that, and and surprisingly not that far under it, is the pain that sexual immorality brings into a person's soul. And if I could, if I could show you video clips, if I could put you in my memory of person after person after person that I have talked to in the wake of sexual destruction, whether it's a pornography addiction or an affair or abuse as a child or whatever, there is pain that comes from that that is so much greater than any other pain that I have witnessed. I'm thankful we have a God for whom nothing is beyond healing. But I'm telling you, there's a lot at stake in this discussion. Before we get into this, I want to say this. Much harm has been done to people by the church in this zone. And most of it's been done in the name of love. We, and we have to own this, and we have to change this. We as the people of God, we as the church, have found ways to take the truth or what we think is the truth and hurt people with it. And it needs to stop. We do not need to be participants in that. We need to find the way of the Father. And I will tell you, I've been witness and I've been a part of it. We've condemned people. We've excluded people. We've been hurtful, we've been harsh, we've been hard. We've tried to get our point across by escalating the emotion or the verbiage of our conversation, but all we've done is crush people. And that's not the call that we have. We've dismissed people's experience, we've shoved aside their pain, and for that, as a church, as the church, we should be profoundly 
broken. We need to passionately pursue the Father's way. Not just the truth, but the Father's way. So that we will represent correctly what we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. And let me speak to you today, if you are one of those people who have been categorized as dirty, sinful, whatever, your actions, your activity, even currently this day, may be something that is across the line and out of bounds. Maybe you are sexually active in ways that the church deems sinful, historically. Maybe you've been treated as a lower class of Christian. Maybe you think of yourself as a shame-filled individual and you feel like you should walk around with this mark of shame on you. What I want you to know and what I want our church to be, we should be a place where you, yes you, can encounter the living God. Where we have taken barriers out of the way for people who have problems and failures and messes just like the rest of us. And can come in and experience the living God. That's what we want to be. Every one of us have issues. Man, do we have issues. All of us have different flavors, different shades of issues. They're all kind of the same issue at their very core, but they show up in different ways. So yours may be one of these sexual sins, these sexual out-of-bounds things. We... As a people are seeking God's work in our lives together. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We all need a savior. So we all come to find the savior together. So you're welcome. If you're in one of these messes, if you're in one of these problems to come find the savior that I need and that you need together. That's what we want to be. For those of you maybe here today, and I know there are some of you who are same sex attracted or transsexual, or any of the LBGTQ stuff. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, but let me just say this today. Without a doubt, our heart is to be a safe place for you because of this. You are a human being first. And I want to share some stuff with you today, but, but we're going to talk about this more in a couple weeks. I want you to know Jesus died for you. Sometimes the church gives the impression that if you have these issues in your life or this is how you identify, that Jesus didn't die for you. Baloney, Jesus died for you. As a matter of fact, you were made in the image of God just like every other person here. And we want to love you like God loves you. You can receive him. You can find eternal life just like everybody else. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Because the fact of the matter is, none of us got qualified to be saved. So you are not unqualified to be saved. We're all unqualified to be saved. That's why Jesus died for us. That's why we call it grace. Undeserved favor. So hopefully, clearing that out of the way, what I'm going to try to do over the next couple weeks is present for us as a church family for how we should know what we need to do about this in our lives. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you haven't given your life to Christ, this really isn't for you. Because the answer to your life is not doing the right things morally. The answer to your life is knowing Jesus Christ. So one of the worst things, and, and I get so frustrated with Christians who get all activated in political stuff because of this reason. One of the worst things we can do is pour our passion and our energy into making all the laws line up with the word of God in our land as though that's going to bring salvation to people. It will not. If they obey every law from the word of God, but they don't have Jesus Christ, they are lost. But they probably think they're okay. 
And that's one of the greatest tragedies. So I would much rather pour our energies into sharing Jesus with people, inviting them to know the power of God through the Son of God, so that their hearts, their souls can be transformed, and Jesus can sort out the messes in their life, just like he's sorting out the messes in our life. Today, we're going to look at the foundations. We're not going to get so much into the sexual ethics per se, although we'll touch on them. The next two weeks, we're going to look at them more. But I want to look at these foundations. And the foundations often get assumed as we discuss these things, but these are actually the bases for Christians' approach to this topic. Probably the best way I can illustrate the truth we're going to start with is to tell you a story about our oldest daughter. So Kylie's going to have her own little one, and I've been praying that her little one will be just like her. So Kylie was about, uh, about a year and a half old, something like that. Dana was working in the kitchen and I was working out in the front yard. And um, there was a little precious moments figurine that was a couple getting married. Um, and it had sat on top of our wedding cake. And it was on a shelf somewhere. We were those parents that were like, we're not moving anything. We're going to teach our kids not to touch. Serves us right. Anyhow, so Kylie picked this up and as a one and a half year old thought, well, this is cute. These are little adorable people. I'm going to play with these. And she walked into the kitchen where Dana was. We had just redone the kitchen floor with ceramic tile. She's standing there as a one and a half year old. Dana turns around, looks, and she says the only thing any good parent would say to a toddler when you realize if you drop that, it's a million pieces. She says, don't you dare. And Kylie, just like any good toddler, did exactly what you would expect. She looked right at Dana, opened her hand, (laughs) dropped it on the ground. Suddenly, I'm out in the yard, and here comes my toddler flying out the door. And I hear the words, you need to deal with your daughter, Something, something along those lines. Now, the question I have for you is, who taught Kylie to be naughty? Who taught her to rebel? Who taught her to have her own will and to say, oh, no, I won't? Maybe in the bigger way, who taught you? What that that thing inside of you that knows better but does the wrong thing anyway, that tries to do the right thing but can't quite get there, where does that come from? And so I think we're going to start just by looking at that because there is a background to this issue. And for Christians, the background really matters. Here's the background. Our world is fallen. Every single person on the face of this planet has a problem. And the problem is that we are fallen. The story we find at the beginning of the Bible describes how mankind turned from God's perfect plan and provision and took life into our own hands. And ever since then, we've been a mess. And we just pass it on from generation to generation You come by it honestly. The truth is, Kylie got that from us because when I was a kid, my mom and dad told me I was in trouble and told me I had to sit down somewhere. And I sat down and I said to them, I may be sitting down on the outside, but inside I'm standing up. (laughs) I'm actually a little bit proud of that right now. Like, way to go, Mark. God created us to know him, to be connected with him. When mankind fell, it changed everything. And 
There are consequences to this fall in our lives. I'm going to start with Romans 5, verse 12, and it just says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. So what Paul says in Romans here is that there was a a man at the beginning who chose to rebel against God. That man is Adam. And when he chose to sin against God, death came to our experience. In other words, there was no death before sin. So that heartache and that heartbreak that we experience when we lose loved ones is a result of our choice to rebel against God. There is a fallout to our choice to go our own way. And we all taste it and we all feel it throughout our lives. But not just him, but all of us have sinned. In other words, it's been passed on and on and on. We don't have to teach our children to lie, to be selfish. To be, we don't have to teach them that. It's there already. We are fallen, and that fallenness is passed on from one to another. We've seen this in our news over this past week even. People do unspeakable evil, and you think, how could they do that? Well, here's how. Every single person is fallen. And every single person, depending on the path they choose and and how much they reject God and how much they they put their trust in themselves, can find themselves in really dark places. All of us can do it. Sin and fallenness affects every single one of us. And more than that, it touches every area of our lives. It has these fingers that reach into everything that we do. So parenting, great gift from God, wonderful blessing, unspeakably like precious. However, how often does parenting turn into something it shouldn't be? And parents try to live out their agenda or, or their, find their self-identity in their children's performance and in their children's pathway. And How could that happen? Because we're fallen. Our careers, great things that God gives us jobs and purpose and, and work that we can do, but how quickly can that turn into something more than it should be? An obsession, a thing that disconnects us, a place that we find our identity and our value. Or other good things, our money, our health, even our reputation. Things that God gives, things that are nice, things that are good, but how quickly they turn. It's a reflection of the fact that all of humanity is fallen. Because of the fall, we look for meaning and identity in places we can't find it. All of us do. And so without a doubt, the fall affects our sexual makeup. Your sexual makeup is affected by the fall. Every single one of you. No matter how you identify, no matter who you're attracted to, you are affected sexually by the fall. Now, sex, like parenting, like money, is a great gift, a wonderful gift that God has given to us. But it's a lousy God. It is a lousy place to find identity. It is a lousy place to look for hope in being happy in life, in finding fulfillment and joy. Make no mistake, every person's sexual nature is touched by the fall, whether you are heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, asexual, doesn't matter, everybody's affected by the fall. Now, in in churches, actually, and and in the world, we're talking about things like polygamy and polyamory, where there are multiple partners, and and you're married to a bunch of different people, or you're committed to a bunch of different people. And that would have been unthinkable 30 years ago, at least to be spoken out loud. And yet now we're having these discussions, and people are justifying it by, well, look at, you know, Abraham, and look at David, and, and they're 
they're justifying it, trying even through the word of God to bring that out. The reality is the fall makes every single one of us self-centered. And because we are self-centered, because your flesh's highest purpose is what do I want? We want to be self-determined and we want to be self-defined. Sexual sin, whether it's a porn addiction or any kind of sexual expression, which isn't what God desires, is a result of the fall. It's an expression of our self-centeredness. So here's what I'm saying. If you have desires that don't fit with God's instruction, welcome to the club. That's all of us. Let's stop acting like those people have a problem before God. They're going to stand in the judgment day and they're going to have a problem. Guess what? We all struggle with it. And we would do much better to identify with one another than to say, here's the line where you're different than me and I'm excluded from you. Do you agree? How did we lose that? And so I would say to you, there's more at stake in missing the fallenness of your sexual nature than just uh, whether or not sex is pleasurable or even big issues that feel like big issues like self-image or gender identity. There are many people who fall outside traditional Christian norms and because of that they feel defensive or they feel attacked. But what if Satan is keeping you from the very hope for your life because of what people have said and how people have treated you? My concern for you is that you get to know that there is hope for your life because here's what I really believe from the Word of God and from your Heavenly Father. You are not your sexual desires. Let me say that again. You are not your sexual desires. It's a lousy way to identify yourself. You are not your sexual attractions. You are not even your gender identity. That's not who you are. That's not what defines you. All of those are a part of your experience, and all of those can have a major impact on your life, but you aren't defined by that. Before we move on to how we figure this out, how we sort this through, and and just finishing out this idea that we all struggle with sin. Paul talks about this battle in Romans 7. He describes it as being a slave to what God says or being a slave to what my flesh wants. And you and I have identified with this battle, but he gives us hope. In verse 25 of Romans 7, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. There is a war in every one of us between the law of sin and the law of God. And thanks be to God that Jesus gives us the victory. That there's an answer and there's a hope and that we can overcome this. But it has to start by recognizing that we're all broken. And that those brokennesses can only find hope as we go to a Savior. That you and I can't fix them, that we must find hope in our Savior. All right, so second thing we want to talk about is how do we sort this out? So if we're all fallen, and that means even my mind and my understanding and my feelings are fallen, so I can't really even rely on them, how do I find my way? Well, as Christians, church, we believe that God knows the right way. Do you believe God knows the right way? Okay, so we should be looking to him. Psalm 145, 17 says this, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. Righteous in all his ways. The word simply means that he is always right and he always does the right thing. Think about that for a minute. Do you believe that God is always right 
and he always does the right thing. Well, sure, I believe that. Well, what about when your life isn't the way you think it should look? What about when you have desires for things that God hasn't given to you? Is God always right, and does he always do the right thing, or is he missing something? It becomes very quickly, a, a, a very practical issue in my soul, not beyond the theoretical, of course God's always right, but very practical in the what's going on in me. And so if you have desires, maybe you're married and you have desires outside your marriage, or maybe you're a same-sex attracted person, you have desires to, to fulfill those attractions. And God says something about it. You have to ask yourself, is God always right or not? And if he's always right, then what I feel and what I think and, and what my struggle is has to be submitted to him if he's always right. And I'm saying this because I, not just in this area of sexuality, but in everything. We've got to come to a place where we believe that God is righteous. And it says he's faithful in all he does. That we can trust him. That he's reliably good towards us. It's the basis for anyone becoming a Christian. That God is right and God is faithful. That God sent his son because his holiness demanded payment for sin. And so God sent his son to die and pay for our sin so that we could be washed clean. It's the very thing we're going to look at at the end of the service. We believe that. And so because of that, we give our lives. If you're a Christian here today, you've said, God, here's my soul. Here's my life. It belongs to you. I'm so convinced that you are right and that you have the right answers. I don't come and say, now, God, what do you think about this? I'll decide if I'm going to do that or not. I'm so convinced that I go to God and I say, God, I'm going to do whatever you say. Tell me what to do. And I know it doesn't feel like a huge difference, but that's a huge difference. Too many believers are going to God and saying, God, I want my way. Let me see if I can find a way to justify it. Instead of saying, God, I want your way, show me what it is. And so as believers, we come to God and we say, God, you tell us. I will follow whatever you say. So as a believer, the question for us is not whether we're gay or bi or trans or whatever. The question is not whether we're still in love with our spouse or whether we have attractions outside of marriage or before marriage. The question is not whether something is considered cheating or not. The question is very simple. What does God want? What does he say? What is God's way? Let me do that. And so we come to the word of God, not with an agenda. We come with worship. We come with humility, convinced that God is good and right and that we are well, well safe to trust him that it is wise to trust him. Can we agree on that? So that's what our goal is as we do this. Our goal is not to try to process all the information the world gives in the latest scientific study about whatever. Our goal is to say, Father, you're my guide. I come humbly, show me the way. On the other hand, doing the wrong thing has really deadly consequences. And I just want to read James 1, 12 to 17, because I think it has such powerful illustration of the battle that goes on here. James 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So it starts off by saying there is trial in our life, and we have to endure through that trial. If you're a Christian and you think that every desire of yours should be fulfilled, you don't have to carry any weight of self-denial, read James again. Okay, so there's enduring. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire 
and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Everything that is genuinely good and pure comes from God. But, he says, we get pulled away by our own desires. Do you see why a believer can't fall in line with the just do whatever he feels right? Just follow your heart? How do we get off track? What does he say? We get off track when our desires are pulled. So I can't just go, well, just do whatever feels right. Because your feels will lead you wrong. They are a vulnerability. And so Satan desires to pull us into sin, to lead us away from God. Whether it is sexual sin, or whether it's telling a lie to keep myself safe, or puffing up my pride, or whatever, it's always a lie that pulls at my desires and pulls me into sin. And sin always leads me to the same place. Did you pick it up? When it's full grown, sin gives gives birth to death. Destruction. Have you tasted enough destruction from sin in your life yet? Do you know that others who are rationalizing what God says is wrong are facing destruction in their lives? I can empathize with that because I've had the destruction in my life. So let me just say, I think what we have to do is recognize that's how I live. And I have to recognize that's going to put me out of step with lots of people. If someone, you know, if, you're, if you haven't given your life to God and you don't believe the Bible is your guide, you're not going to look at this and go, okay, that makes sense. You're going to be like, that's stupid. You're never going to be happy. You're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be fulfilled. You're denying your very nature. Yeah, no, I'm not, but I hear you. I understand. So that's why we're not really looking to force others to follow God. Have you ever been able to force someone to follow God? Parents, how does that work? Do you know what I always say about that? Do you know whose job it is to to convince people to follow God, to give their life to God? The Holy Spirit. Do you know who's a much better Holy Spirit than you? The actual Holy Spirit, yeah. So sometimes you're jabbering on about how they should this and that, whatever, and, and you're like, just in the Holy Spirit's way. Just get out of His way. You know what I mean? Live like you believe it. Share love, share kindness, share goodness, Stand up for the truth when you have to. Do it in kindness and gentleness and love. But let the Holy Spirit draw people to him because it's not your job. It's his job. And he's so much better at it than you. You're fired, right? (laughs) Move on. The Holy Spirit job is not open. He's got it. And so we don't try to force others to follow God. And we don't try to make a measure up culture in our church. Because the church is a place where people are struggling with their fallenness and coming to surrender to Almighty God, to their Savior. And so if your mess is not yet cleaned out, it's because you're in process and that should be a safe thing for you to do in the family of God, shouldn't it? So someone walks in and they have one of these, they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend or they're in the middle of an affair or whatever, whatever's going on in their life. They got a porn addiction and they walk in and you're kind of like, ooh, I don't, I don't want to catch that. And you go over here, like... Doesn't that do something? Doesn't that say something? Something untrue? Your mess is worse than mine. I, I can't handle your mess. I want God to handle mine, but I, I don't think he can handle yours. This should be a place where we recognize we're not, we don't have to measure up. We just have to keep pointing one another towards the answer. 
Last thing I want to talk about in foundation, and it kind of ties us to what we're going to do in communion here. There's this discussion out there about love. Love seems to justify anything and everything. You know? Let's talk about what that is because it is something that comes from God. It is something that is very, the very nature of God. But people will say now, love is love. Love whoever you want. Love is love. Okay, great. That's a great statement. Love is love. What does that mean? Well, what it means in our culture is you should be able to love whoever you want. So we've just attached a definition to it that all love is equal, that all love, it, that all love is connected to sexuality and attraction. And I wonder, believers, if you fall prey to that way of thinking or if we can see through it. Because, well, God is love. So since God is love, anything is, do whatever feels loving. But here's the deal. Love is not sex. Love is not sex. Love is not sex. Love is different from sex. And yet, so, somehow, it's become synonymous And we've bought into this discussion. And we've tried to fight on this discussion line. And we're losing badly. Because we don't act like we actually know what love is. We know what judging is. We know what pride is. But do we know what love is? Maybe we need to start being an example of what actual love is. Because love is not compatible with pride. Did you know that? Love is not compatible with pride. So I just want to take a minute and I want to cleanse our mental palate, the palate of our soul about what love is. Because love is by its very nature selfless, patient, devoted, exclusive, enduring. But not in our world today. When they say love is love, they don't mean that. Here's what God says, 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, doesn't want what it doesn't have. It doesn't boast, it isn't proud. It does not dishonor others. It isn't self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, how does that compare with what we're using the word love to justify? Is our love, our understanding of love, our embracing of love, stretching us in patience and self-denial? What? No, no. Love is about satisfying yourself, about looking out for your own interests, about loving yourself. No, that's not what it said, is it? There's two ways to apply this. First, believers. Has this been our defining characteristic as we tell people about sexual sin in love? Love is patient. Have we been? Love is kind. Have we been? Keeps no record of wrongs. Is that us? Not easily angered. What? Isn't proud. Whoa, now you're getting a little bit hard here. Doesn't dishonor others. How are we doing? You see, what we've lost is exactly what they're trying to base all of this on. We are the light of the world. Are we? 
Second, to those who use love as an end-all argument to their sexual behavior, does the definition fit? Because love is sacrifice. Love is patient. It waits. Love wants what's right, what God says, because we believe that's the best thing for you. It doesn't embrace what is wrong. Well, I can't help it. I love them. If you love them, you want what God has for them as best. Too often what we define as love is selfishness, masked in romantic feelings, and some kind of a understanding of a personal connection. It's not love at all, and it's destructive. If we apply this definition of love to our culture, it can help us sort things out. Love is able to wait. Love is kind, able to turn away from advantage or power for the sake of another's well-being. It is self-denying. It is enduring. Right now in our world, pornography is epidemic. About 80% of men report being addicted to pornography. Here's what porn teaches you. It programs us for self-fulfillment, using others for your own sexual gratification. And then that spills over because you've connected love and sex together. It spills over into the relationships that God gives you and eventually a marriage relationship that God gives you. But you still think that love is about selfishness, self-centeredness, about my pleasure, about my desires, instead of about serving. See how destructive this is? Well, if you're not hurting anyone, what do you mean not hurting anyone? Have you heard, do you have any idea about the slavery thing that's going on in the world today? The sexual slavery thing that's going on in the world today? We are just willfully blind. You know why? Because we're selfish. And we don't want to see the bigger picture because it means we have to be in self-denial. But self-denial is very core to the nature of love. Believers, this is who we're called to be. Love can surrender self-interest. It can be gentle with others. It is exclusive. It is faithful. It endures to the end. If you're married today, love actually endures. It doesn't wake up one day and go, you know what? I don't really like you anymore. I'm done with you. Love doesn't do that. So if that's what you're operating in, it's not love anymore. And it's not what you're called to. And you know it. In your soul, you know it. So think about the discussion under the category of love that we see in the world today, in music, in movies. How does it compare with this definition? Self-denying, exclusive, self-controlled. Not too well, does it? Because love is not self-controlled. Love is passion. Love is not exclusive. Love's whoever's next, right? That's the most exciting there is. And how often does the discussion today about love and, and sexual issues revolve around standing up for your rights, doing what makes you happy, Self-interest. How much of our culture trains people to believe that the most passionate love is the one that isn't grounded in exclusive? Right? It's be, the, the most passionate love, the thing you would miss out on by, by following God's word, is the thing that's the best. Love isn't grounded in self-control. So we wind up living together while we're dating and, and sleeping together and being sexually active, going outside of marriage. Or... But love is grounded in self-control. And then there's this, this little extra thing, and, I, and this is where we're going to tie into community. This little extra thing. We believe today in some way that if we don't have a sexual or romantic love, if we are not able to express it and enjoy that gift from God, regardless of how we define it, that we are destined to live less of a life. Don't we? 
How could you be happy if you can't sexually express the love that you have, the attraction you have? How could you be happy? It's a lie. And by the way, two of the biggest names in the Bible never did that. The Apostle Paul was a single man. Jesus, our Lord, lived a single life. Guess what? You can live a very highly purpose-filled life without sexuality at all. That's not the message that goes on in the world around us, is it? 